we kind of get into Easter, but the problem is that like we all have sort of these different ideas of what Easter is, why Jesus died, why he lived, why he rose. Um, and a lot of that has to do with first impressions of God, first impressions of church, first impressions of Jesus, first impressions of the Bible. There's this phrase that I hate because I make a lot of mistakes and I often say stupid things, but it is you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? You never get a second chance to make a first impression. And so like my dad drilled that into me when I was young. And so, so I've, I've really tried to focus in my adult life on making a good first impression. Now my second and third impression aren't great, but my first is generally pretty good. Um, and so I actually have a story about this, right? So, so when I went to interview for my job at Stonebridge Church before, I think you guys all know, before I worked here, I worked at Stonebridge. And uh, I remember when I went to interview for my job, like I wore a suit and I don't often wear a suit places. I mean, I was dressed nice. I went and got a haircut uh, the day before, which is risky, but I went to a good place and, and I was shaved, if you can imagine that. And uh, I, and I mean, I was ready to make, we drove over early in the afternoon. My interview was in the evening. We drove over early in the afternoon. We hung out at a friend's house for, for a while until finally I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go. I know I'm going to get there early, but I'll get there a half hour early. I'll be able to think through things and I'll be ready to go. And so I remember walking in uh, to Stonebridge and I was in my suit and they were interviewing somebody else when I got there. And so David Eldridge saw me walk in and caught my eye and he started to come out. And I was like, oh gosh, he's coming out. That's weird. And, and so he walked out and I walked out to him. I said, hey, I know, I know I'm early. I know I'm a half hour early. And he looked at me like I was insane. And he said, you're a half hour late. And I thought, oh no, I got the time wrong. I got the time wrong. I was an hour off of when I was supposed to be there. And that was my first impression. And then he said, yeah, come in and interview with these people. And that was my first impression. And I remember thinking, it doesn't matter what I say from here. It's over. But that ought to tell you how good I was. That ought to tell you how good I was. It was not over. I got the job. But it's tough. Like, first impressions. David told that story literally last week to a group of people that I was sitting with at lunch. So the first impression was still there. And I think the first impression with me was doesn't always get the right information, right? Doesn't always get the right information. And the thing is that like first impressions don't just come with people, they come with things. And a lot of times the reason bad first impressions come with things is because we don't have the right information. And that's a little bit of what we're gonna talk about today and in this series. But the first thing I want you to do is I want you to share a bad first impression story. It can be you, it can be somebody else, it can be a thing. So I want you to go for it. Share a bad first impression story. All right, so, so the reason, so, so psychologically, right, the reason uh, that first impressions last so long is this thing called the primacy effect. And again, it's not just true for, uh, it, it's not just true for people, it's true for things. And the primacy effect says when somebody experiences something first, so if you experience things in a sequence, Whatever you experience first, you remember more. The first thing you remember more. This is a big thing. This has been a big thing for us with our kids, which is like we want to be the first people on the ground in terms of important definitions. Whoever defines something, everybody else is constantly trying to, to fight against that definition. You don't know that subconsciously. So the first time this has happened for you, right? Like, and, it's, and, and the truth is that a wrong definition is the source of a lot of things. We're fine. We're all fine. We've heard babies cry. It's fine. <laughs> Wrong information 
first is the source of a lot of the things that we struggle with. Think about it. If you had a bad definition of marriage, if your first understanding of marriage was bad, you're constantly fighting it, right? And it is way harder to shift than it was to shape. If you have a bad definition or your initial definition for money or finances or how to deal with those things, if it was negative, the, what it takes to shift that is huge, right? Parenting, politics, and church and Jesus all fall into this, right? The earliest definitions end up being the things that everything is fighting against, right? So, so a lot of us, and not just us, but a lot of people have bad impressions of Christianity, bad impressions of the church. And they've always had them. They're just probably being more vocal about them now than they've ever been. And honestly, nobody would say this because everybody likes to think that they like Jesus. But a lot of people, it, some of this comes from just a bad impression of Jesus. And it's not even necessarily a bad impression of Jesus. It's, it's a wrong impression of Jesus. And, and so what we end up doing with Jesus right, is we, because everybody wants to like Jesus, seems like a cool guy based on at least some of the things we know about him. There's, the truth is a lot of us, there's a lot of things that he said and did that we don't know about. But what we do, because we don't want to have a bad impression of Jesus, is we just kind of form Jesus to our own image. We take elements of what Jesus said. We say, I like this thing. I like this thing. This makes me feel good about me. And then we just sort of shape Jesus into our own image, and that makes us feel better. But the truth is, that a Jesus that's our own projection is really just us. Right? And, and a Jesus that is really just me with Jesus' clothes on can't transform me. Right? If, if Jesus is going to help me, if Jesus is going to change me, then he has to exist in a way that is objective of how I already am and how I already think and how I already feel. And, and so a little of what we're hoping to do, of what I'm hoping to do in this kind of five weeks that includes Easter for us, is to maybe get back to just, what did Jesus say and do? And we won't hit everything, right? Obviously in five weeks, we got five chances. We won't hit everything. But I hope we're gonna hit some important things. And particularly around this idea of first impressions, I wanted to start with this passage today from Mark chapter 1. So if you don't know this, uh, the Gospels aren't the earliest written things in the New Testament. There are things that, are, uh, that by date were written earlier. Um, but but when, once the Gospels were written, it is believed that Mark was the earliest of the Gospels that were written. It was written maybe, depending on who you ask, uh, sometime between 25, 30 years um, after Jesus' death, which in, which in historical period, I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about this on Easter Sunday, but in historical periods, uh, that is not a long amount of time um, at all. And so Mark is the earliest one that got written down of, of the communications that people were making about Jesus. And so we're going to look at Mark in terms of first impressions. And then we're going to look at the first words of Jesus in Mark. There are other gospels that record some earlier words of Jesus. But, but these are the first words of Jesus recorded in the first written down account of Jesus's life. And so we're going to look at Mark 
chapter 1, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read through into 20. And, and we're going to focus really on 115. And, and there's a lot more to the message of Jesus than those 15 words. But again, remember this idea of primacy, right? This idea that what is said first is incredibly important. And, and this is what Mark first wanted us to know that Jesus said. And so there's a lot to be communicated in it. All right, so start in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. says, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's those 15 words uh, in verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing the nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat where the hired, with the hired men and followed him. So I'm calling this things Jesus said and did. The, and, and so I want to include both of those things. I want to include the proclamation of Jesus and then the sort of what Mark lets us see as the immediate follow through on a little bit of what those words meant, right? But this idea, Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So we're going to get four words, all right? We're just going to get four words and, and we're going to explore those words a little bit. I'm going to give you sort of three things, the idea behind the word the false impression that we often get about Jesus related to this word, and then the true message that Mark seems to say Jesus is communicating around that word. The four words are gospel, kingdom, repent, time. Y'all say that just so I know that you care at all what's going on. Gospel, kingdom, repent. Yeah, I tried to get some water on that last one. All right, first word is gospel, right? So gospel, the idea here, the, the word um, in Greek is evangel, evangel. And so you guys know um, what kind of all the things that that relates to um, when you talk about evangelistic or evangelicals or things like that. But we have a lot packed into that, right? But really for them, that word evangel, if you break it down, it really translates literally as news that brings joy. News that brings joy. And it wasn't just like news, like daily news. Hey, here's what's going on with me today. I hope that brings you joy. Evangel was used for like history-making, life-changing news. There's a, there's a document around. This is kind of interesting. There's a document that was around um, about the same time that Jesus lived. And it started out this, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Right? It was the story of Caesar Augustus. It was the good news. It was the news that should bring you joy because we have this great leader, Caesar Augustus. When a leader conquered an area or when a group of people liberated an area, you see this with Greece, right? When Greece starts to become liberated from uh, Persia, my history is a little off, I think it's Persia, uh, you, they, they sent out these proclamations that they called evangels, the, the good news. And essentially it would say, this is the idea. This is the good news. You have been set free out of slavery and into a great story with great leadership. Most evangels, that was the idea, right? You are being rescued out of blank, whatever that is, and into the greatest life possible, into prosperity, into safety, into clarity, 
right? Something has been done for you. We're telling you this. That's the gospel. The evangel was something has been done for you that's going to change every opportunity you have going forward. When Jesus said, that's what I've done, right? Believe the good news. That's what he's saying. Believe that something has been done for you that's going to change every opportunity you have going forward. Now, the false impression that we often have early in our lives and in the church and, and because of the church often is that it is not good news, even though we hear that, it's good advice, right? This is the good advice of Jesus. These are the things that you could do to make your life better. These are the things that if you add them to your life, they're going to give you all the things that you need. Right? The good advice of Jesus. And here's the thing. Like, I'm not anti-advice. I give it more than I'm asked for it, for sure. But sometimes when you're hurting, when you're in trouble, when you're weighed down, like, advice is the worst. Right? It, it, is, it, is, it, it maybe seems helpful, but, but if you can't help yourself, if you're enslaved, if you're being ruled over by something, Right? You've seen this if you've struggled with the mental or emotional health and people have great advice for you. Right? That, that it ends up being the worst, right? Especially when you feel your worst. Right? Advice might bring clarity, but it doesn't bring freedom. It just brings something else that you have to do. And again, advice in itself is, is not bad. But it, we need to be clear that, that Jesus isn't offering the good advice of God, right? The, the true message when Jesus says, believe the gospel, what he's saying, believe is this, something has been done for you that's going to change every opportunity you have going forward. Something has been done for you that has rescued you from the worst things the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is primarily a story about what God has done and what God is doing for us. Right? There's this, there's this element of uh, rabbis didn't, in, in Jesus' day, they didn't go calling people. People had to say, I'm going to follow that rabbi. And so the fact that we see Jesus going to John, going to Peter and Andrew, is a different move. Jesus is saying like, no, 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 you, you don't, you hear this in the Bible. You don't pick me first. I picked you. I picked you. I came for you. I came to do something for you. You're not deciding to be like me. I'm deciding to come and set you free, right? The second is part of following Jesus, right? We talk about following, but it comes from the first. It comes from the gospel. We are rescued. Well, what are we rescued from and what are we rescued for? Right? Because that's super important, right? Because some of us feel like I don't need to be rescued. Right? Like I feel good. I work hard. I get what I'm supposed to get. I get what I deserve. Some of you guys still think that, but it'll fail eventually. But, but some of us still think that. And so Jesus says, I'm coming to rescue from something. Well, what's he coming to rescue us from, right? So is, is Christianity just for people who have really bad lives, who things are falling apart, and nothing's going well? No, no, no. It's, it's way bigger than that, right? So, so Jesus, the, the next word, you guys remember the second word I said we were going to talk about? Is it up there? 
No, it's not kingdom. Yeah, kingdom. So what have I been rescued from and what have I been rescued for? Well, Jesus says you've been rescued for a kingdom, but, but we need to give some context to that. So the Jewish people, they believe that all of human history was divided into two parts. All right? The, the first part was what they called this present evil age. This present evil age was the result of humanity in the beginning in Genesis saying, God, we don't want you to be in charge. We'd rather be in charge. We feel like we can make the best decisions here, right? And we want to be our own kings and queens. Like we don't want God as a king, right? And then you see that played out through the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the Old Testament as all, as the people constantly saying, like, we, we would rather have people be our kings. This is too weird for us. We'll elect our kings. We'll choose our kings. And, and, what, and what the Jewish people believed was that every problem, of, or most problems, I mean, ultimately, they believed every problem. We don't have time to get all into that today. But, but every problem in the world was a result of those decisions. That selfishness, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, self-idolatry was the source of what they called this present evil age, which was sickness and death <clears throat> and poverty and weeping and mourning and every, every bad thing. that you could, They even talked about natural disasters and all those things. And again, uh, we don't have time to get into all that. But, but that's what they believed. And then they believed that there was going to be a second act. There was going to be a second part to history. And that's what they called God's kingdom, right? The kingdom to come. And that's what Jesus is talking about. They believed that God, someday God would say, my kingdom is here, right? And when the kingdom was here, God would be king again, and all those other things would go away. No death, no sickness, no poverty, no mourning, right? No natural disasters, no broken relationships. And they said, someday God's going to come back, and that's what's going to happen. Now, what happens for us is that when we think about the kingdom, as church people, what we do is, is we think about present evil age and we think about God's kingdom and, and we tend to fall into one of two places. One is often, and don't, this isn't just about money, but one is often what people call prosperity in the church. This idea that everything should go well for you if you follow Jesus. And so you should have money and you shouldn't ever get sick and people should never die before they're supposed to, and everything that happens, right, should be good because God's will is good, and because I follow Jesus, the only things that happen to me are God's will. And so there's that end of it, right? And, and I think most of us in here are like, you're not here if you're a prosperity person, all right? Like that's, unless you accidentally walked in here today, right? So, so that's not necessarily us, but I, but I think the other side of that is that we reject that we say, well, God's not that. Jesus was poor and people suffered and he died and all these things. And so we kind of get into this like area where like the, the, we're all in the present evil age. And, 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 and really, in, in some respects, like uh, it, things are dead. Things are not good. They're just bad and there's nothing we can do about it. And we can try to be better people, but people aren't going to get better. People don't get healed. And so don't pray for them. Right? Like there's, there's, if you, if, if someone has money, it's probably because God doesn't like them and they're a horrible person. Right? Like these ideas that we sort of gin up and these false impressions on the other side, because we've, we've been so hurt by the idea that things aren't always prosperous, that we've said, well, church is nice and it's supposed to make you feel better about yourself. And 
and that's good, and we can learn how to be better people, but, but God's not healing people today. God's not setting people free today. I'm never going to experience real joy today or fullness today. That's for the age to come. That's for God's kingdom someday. And we end up just like the Jewish people. We're in one or we're in the other. And what's, what's interesting in this passage is that Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of God is here, right? He doesn't. Go pick up. There should be a slide that just has Mark 1.15. You see it? Okay, cool. It's going to come up here in a second. Right? What does he say? The kingdom of God has what? Come near. So what Jesus does is he inserts a second act and says it's a three-act play. What Jesus says is life is history is not a two-act play. There's a three-act play, right? And now that I am here, the kingdom isn't fully here yet. We have to acknowledge that, right? Like Jesus healed people, but guess what? There are a lot of people he didn't heal. One of the reasons we know that is that because there was somewhere that Jesus walked all the time, and after Jesus died and resurrected, the disciples are walking there, and there's people who need to be healed who have been there for years, it says. So Jesus walked past people and didn't heal everybody. Right? There were still people in poverty. There were still people mourning. Right? There are tons of stories. We're going to look at one of those with Jesus, where people close to Jesus die. Right? And so Jesus is saying, it's not fully here yet, but here's what you need to know. The kingdom of God is near. And, and that word near means that you, you, you can touch it sometimes if you reach out into it. But near means it's close enough for you to touch if you're reaching out but not it's all-encompassing. Near means sometimes something's going to catch you from the backside. <laughs> but it's near. And even when that thing catches you from the backside, you can reach out to it and you can experience it. But it's not all-encompassing. Right? The true message of Jesus is that I'm coming so that you can start to experience what we'll all experience someday. And I'm not saying that you're always going to experience all of it. But if you reach out, you can start to touch some of this. You can start to see some of this. And that's super hard for us. I'm just, I'm just going to admit it. That's, that's really hard for us, right? Because I want to be all or nothing. I don't like that I pray for some people and they get well, and I pray for other people and they don't. Don't like that. But if Jesus is who he says he is, and that's some of what we're going to look at over the next five weeks, if he is, so just go with me this week, if he is who he says he is, and he says the kingdom is near, I'm not going to miss the chance to try to reach out and touch it. I'm not going to miss the chance. Because if I can even touch it once or twice or three times in my life for somebody who's important, I got to take the chance. Might get hurt, might get let down. But I got to take the chance. I got to do it. If he is who he says he is, he's got to define that and not me. Right? I do also want to say that something different about Christianity is the fact that the kingdom coming on earth is what we're looking for means that we value the earth and we value what's happening right now. So if Jesus says the kingdom is near, that means Jesus wants to end poverty in every place that it's possible to end poverty. 
and I want to reach out into that. That means Jesus wants to end racism. That means Jesus wants to end mourning. That means Jesus wants to end sickness. And so I am constantly, if I'm a follower of Jesus, reaching out to see his kingdom come and his will be done as near as I can on this side of eternity. And that's something not a lot of religions do. Most religions either say we're going to escape this earth when we die or this earth is an illusion. Even if you don't believe in any religion, like if you're an atheist, if you're a materialist, then you think it's all going to burn up anyway, right? We should save it for as long as we can. But it's all going to burn up in the sun eventually anyway. Christianity is, is, is unique in its commitment to say God is going to renew this earth and we have to actively be engaged and proclaiming that renewal through our actions. So how do we embrace that? How do we embrace this difficulty of the kingdom being near? Well, the third word that we're going to look at that he uses, and I know we're working backwards here, but the third word is repent. Repent. Everybody loves the word repent, right? I can think of a single person who loves the word repent. Anybody does. People, angry people love to yell it at other people. Nobody wants to hear it for themselves, right? It's a tough church word, makes you feel judged. Repent. If I looked up here today and I said, everybody needs to repent, you guys would be like, I need to repent of walking in this room, right? Because repent really just means turn around. It's not super loaded. It's not this ethical statement, I'm better than you. Repent really just means simply turn around. You're focused in one way. Now that's what you have to embrace about repentance is you're focused somewhere and it's the wrong way. But if you turn around, things can change. So, so what do we need to turn around from? Well, it's what I talked about, right? Like it's this idea, it's primarily selfishness and it's secondarily idolatry that comes from selfishness. What, what, what Jesus is saying we need to turn around from is trying to be the gods of our own lives. Trying to decide that we know better than God for our lives. And to turn around from that is just to leave all that behind and turn towards Jesus. Right? If you look at his first disciples, Jesus doesn't, he's not like, hey, would you guys possibly consider if you're free on Sunday at 1010 coming over to this thing that I'm going to do? No. He's like, hey, follow me. And they go, okay. And they leave it all. There's a reason that that story's in there. Right? There are people later on in Jesus' story who are like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. There's a reason that Jesus says, this is the message, and this is what it looks like. This is the message, and this is what it looks like. It, may, it was a huge deal. Not a huge deal for most of us to leave our family of origin, right? We're like, oh, thank God. I was just waiting for someone to ask me to leave, please. I just didn't think I had any other options. But for them, that was huge. That would be like Jesus saying today, leave your job. Come on, leave. Go. I know it's your paycheck. I know it's how you take care of yourself. I know it's how you feed people. Come on, let's go. Right? That's the level that it was for them to leave their families. Right? So, so here's the false impression. Is that I, I, I think that we tend, this isn't just my idea. I've, I've learned this from people. But I think we tend to think of Christianity like that spectrum. Again, you know, we talked about a spectrum earlier. We think of Christianity like a spectrum. And over here you have hypocrites. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? Hypocrites are people that say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But their lives are, look nothing like that. Right? But over here, what do you have? Fanatics. Right? Crazy people. 
right? People that make you super uncomfortable all the time and say things like, well, brother, and stuff like that, right? It's just God's will, right? Like these, and, and, and then there's worse than that, right? Like there's people that pick it and, and do horrible things and, and, and use Jesus's name to justify it. And so we look at Christianity as a spectrum. We don't want to be a hypocrite. We don't want to be a fat fanatic. What we want to be is somewhere in here, right? I just kind of want to be a cool Christian, right? I watch these reality shows and the Christians on them. I watch them because the, there's always a Christian on them. And I'm always like, oh Lord, like, why won't they just let a normal Christian on one of these shows? And I think this is a normal Christian. I want somebody somewhere in the middle. But the interesting thing, again, about Jesus is he doesn't say, like, listen, I need some of you guys to take the foot off the gas and following me a little bit. It's getting to be a bit much, this devotion to me. He doesn't say that. Right, because Jesus knows something that, that we don't. He knows a lot of things that we don't. But, but one thing that Jesus knows that, that we don't know is that when you follow him, you're not a fanatic in the way that we think of a fanatic. And it's really not following Jesus fully that makes these fanatics so off-putting. It's, because they're not, it's not because they're too devoted to Jesus. It's because they're not devoted enough to the Jesus of the Bible. Right, that they're actually missing a fullness to their devotion. Because if you look at Jesus when you follow him, it's not it's not judgment, right? The only people Jesus got in judgment arguments with were super hypocritical church people. Right? Jesus isn't blowing things up or picketing. Right? Jesus isn't embarrassing God. And, and so the, the true message of Jesus isn't, don't be a hypocrite, don't be a fanatic. The true message of Jesus when he says repent is simply this, just be devoted to me. Just be devoted to me. I'm devoted to you. And that's the best way for this to work. And the reason is this, because if following Jesus is conditioned on something else, Jesus will never be God, and you will never fully experience what Jesus has for you. Quick story. I'll tell you guys a quick story about a guy named C.T. Studd. Great name. He was a uh, rugby player. He was a professional rugby player, which is a, it's a good name for a rugby player. But then God grabbed hold of his life, and he became a missionary. And, and there's this great story. He was part of, he was part of this, net, he was part of this, uh, I'd say network of churches because we are, but he was part of this uh, kind of big church that had leaders that would come in and view you. And he was preaching uh, one day in front of his congregation and one of his superiors was there visiting and observing him. And in the middle of his sermon, he got up and he, he said, he was talking about full devotion, complete devotion, desire to be with Jesus. And he told everybody to stand up um, on their chairs. Everybody stand up on their pews, and he stood up on his chair uh, to worship as an act of full devotion. And so after the service, his superior comes up to him, and he said, that was the most embarrassing display of emotionalism I've ever seen. Don't ever do that again. Right? So, so months and months and months later, um, this, this, these church leaders and everything, they go on this cruise together, and they're all out there, and there's a bunch of other people there too. They're meeting, they're having conferences, things like that, um, but there's a lot of like non-Christians there, um, and uh, uh, the, the guy who complained about C.T. Studd, 
He's just experiencing this conviction in his life um, about not really following the Lord. And he's watching C.T. Studd um, and his devotion. And he talks to C.T. Studd's wife and he says, listen, he said, I, I need, I'm missing something. I need what you and your husband have. And she, and, and she looked at him and she said, well, you know, let me just ask you three questions, really. She said, would you re- repent of any known sin in your life? He said, I do, I will. Would you devote your life fully to God and to Jesus, his son? And he said, I will, I, I will. And she said, would you stand in your chair? And he said, I think I would, but I don't have one. And she stood up from hers and she said, you can have mine. And he took that chair and the story is that he went into this kind of bar area on the, uh, on the, sh- on the ship, on the cruise, and stood up on the chair and preached to the, all the people in the bar and experienced a different type of renewal in life. And here's the thing. I'm not going to ask you guys to stand on your chairs today. This is a youth group and a retreat. I would do it. I'm not going to ask you guys to stand up on your chairs today. But there's a question of why wouldn't you? Right? Why wouldn't we? And it's not because of anything that God would say. It's, it's us. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to feel weird. That's not what I do. And if that's the relationship you're having with God, I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's It's limited. And you're not experiencing the fullness. And it's not, I'm not saying that if you stand on your chair, even if you're willing to stand on your chair, that suddenly God's going to start answering all these prayers in your life. What I'm saying is that you're finally going to know what it feels like to fully follow. And that's something that changed my life forever. All right, last thing. <clears throat> Time. Right? When are you going to be ready for all this stuff? When are you going to be ready to be fully devoted to Jesus? When is the time? So Jesus says, Go back to the verse. What does he say? The time has come, right? So here's the idea. Two words in Greek, really two primary words. They had like six words for everything. But two primary words for time. One is chronos, one is kairos. Chronos, we know. It's how you set your clock today if you set a clock, right? It's the forward propelling time that you measure. That's chronos. But in this passage... Jesus doesn't use chronos. He doesn't say the time has come. He doesn't say that, you know, physically, this is the time that I'm going to walk on earth and start preaching. He says the kairos has come, right? Kairos was used by a lot of philosophers. It was used by a lot of mystics um, in this time. And, And they would have defined it as deep time, right? The time that requires a decision. The time that calls for action, conversion, transformation. You've had these moments. You've ever proposed to someone or thought about proposing to someone. That's Kairos. Right? Big job decisions, Kairos. Right? Moving geographies, Kairos. These these moments, they're, they're pregnant with meaning and purpose. And then when you make the decision, some, a lot of times with things like that, you think it's going to be some big thing, but there's just this moment, right? And you just know something happens. You're driving, you're walking, right? And you just know it's time for life to change. 
right? Kairos are the moments of opportunity, the moments of grace where everything can change. In the New Testament, it really just means the appointed time and God's purposes. And Jesus is saying it's a Kairos moment. This is a Kairos moment. This is a moment of decision. And when we think about following Jesus and when we think about who Jesus is, I think a lot of times we get stuck in one of two places. Either I'll do it later, right? A lot of us did that when we were younger. I'll have time later. I want to have fun. I want to do my own thing, right? I got too much going on, too busy. There's too many things that might cost me. What if God does want me to leave my job? What if God does want me to change this thing or that thing? What if God wants to change how I view my finances? What if, you know, like I I don't have time. I don't have time. There's, there's too much. I'll do it later. Or, and this is worse, this is worse, is it's too late. It's too late. In our culture, a lot of people feel that way. It's too late. I could have made a change in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s. I'm going to stop there and make everybody feel comfortable. But it's too late. I was talking to a friend this week whose dad is, I think in his 50s, maybe 60. He said, I'm so sad for my dad because he feels like his life is over. And all he does is look back with regret. His dad made all these decisions that were for his family but not for his career. And now he's, he's coming up on 55, 60, and he's looking at all the consequences of making decisions for your family but not your career. You can imagine and fill in the blanks. and he's looking back and saying, I wasted all my good years and there's nothing I can do. What's funny is if you're you're a decade past anybody who's feeling that way, you know that they're stupid, but you think the same thing about yourself. Right? Because here's the true message of Jesus. It's not that that was Kairos. It's that that was the beginning of Kairos for all of us. It's time. It's time. The time you have is Kairos time because of what Jesus did. It, all of it. All of it. Jesus stepped into time so that he could give us something that was timeless. It's a great story. I'll finish with this story and then we'll take communion. I'm going to kind of give you guys a so what to this and then we'll take communion with our families. But I do want to tell this story. There's this great story in the Old Testament um, that I didn't know for years. Like, I've read the Bible a lot in 20 years of working, and I'm sure I read this at some point, but I didn't remember it. And then, like, three or four years ago, I read a book that talked about it, and it's this great story. If you, if you don't know this, the background is this. Uh, when Moses was leading the Israelites through the desert, uh, they, they spied out the promised land, right, where they were going to leave, where, they, where God was leading them to take, and it was going to be theirs. And they send these 10 guys, and it was all guys. I'm sorry, ladies. They send the, that may have been the problem. They send these 10 guys, and... Uh, they come back and eight of them are like, these guys are giants. They're going to kill us. We can't beat these guys. We can't go in the promised land. And, and, and because of those eight guys, they don't get to go uh, for 40 years. But two guys around 40 years old, two guys around 40 years old, which in their day was young. That's right. Um, two guys around 40 were like, we can get these guys. Like, we can take them. Like, we should go in there. And so those guys get to live until they actually get in the promised land 40 years later. One of those guys is Joshua. You know him. There's a book about him. The other is a guy named Caleb. 
And like the story that I didn't know or I didn't remember or whatever is that when Joshua gets in the promised land, finally, everybody else dies. Joshua and Caleb are still alive. They're in their 80s at this point. And <clears throat> they get into the promised land. And Joshua's like giving everybody their stuff, all right? So they defeat Jericho. You know that story, right? And so Joshua's giving everybody their stuff. And he comes around to Caleb and he's like, all right, Caleb, you're my guy. We thought this was going to work. Nobody said it was going to work. What do you want? And Caleb said, I want to go finish what we started. I want to go fight those guys. I want to go take out those guys. Caleb was 80. This is what, in my friend group, we called old man strength, right? Like, this is what he's got. He says to Joshua, he says, I'm as strong now as I was then. We all know he was wrong. <laughs> but Caleb said, this is my time. This is my time, and this is God's destiny for me, and nobody can take it away from me, and age is, not, age is sure not going to take it away from me. I'm breathing, and I got a shot at God's destiny for me. So none of those guys who thought we couldn't make it could take it from me. Forty years couldn't take it away from me, and I'm not going to miss my chance. This could be my shot. I want that. I want what God has for me. It's my kairos. Everybody may look at me and say, it's not my chronos anymore. Time has passed me by. But I'm saying, God gave me kairos, and I want all of it. And that's the thing that I want to encourage you with today about the gospel. Is that none of this matters if it's a story about something that had a long time ago, that happened a long time ago, that is good for some people. All of it matters if right now and forever it is our Kairos. All of it matters. It matters in this minute. It matters in the minute you walk out of here. It's going to matter tomorrow. No matter what else is going on, God's looking at you and saying, it's time. It's time to be free. Right? It's time to embrace things of the kingdom and life abundant that you maybe thought could never happen and people say is magic. And it's time to stop turning back to the other things. It's not about rules. Just turn. Just turn and say, me. Pursue me. You don't have to pursue Highlands or any of these other things. Just pursue me. And let's see where we end up together. I think you're going to find your Kairos in that. So here's the so what. Because you always need a so what. Like, where in these areas do you need a new impression of Jesus? Where in these areas do you need a new impression of what Jesus came to do? Are you super self-reliant? You need to realize that that's not the message of the kingdom. It's not good advice. Right? Are you in that place where you're looking at the kingdom that is near but not here? And you're like this one guy that Jesus encountered whose son needed to be healed. And Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What a great pairing of sentences. I think I say that to Jesus all the time. Is that you? Are you in a place where you just need to say, I believe, Jesus, I believe that your kingdom is near, but help my unbelief because I don't get to see your kingdom enough? Are you nervous about what full devotion would look like? Are you afraid to stand on your chair? And you need to deal with that? Or are you stuck in it's too soon for me or it's too late? I'll do it later. Or I should have done it earlier. And that's the thing that I'd encourage you to lay before Jesus.